Center on 1290 CJBK. It's our regular uh, feature on Wednesdays at 11 o'clock when Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz join me. And welcome to both of you today. Morning, Hello. Jim. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to see you both recovered from whatever you did on New Year's <laughs> Eve, and I don't want to know about it. Jeffrey, you were up in the in the mountains still at New Year's? Yes. Yeah, got no hills. We spent uh, New Year's at a uh, wonderful little uh, sort of a pub bar in a uh, town called Wakefield, a tiny little town in uh, the Gatineau. Oh, oh I know exactly where Wakefield is. What, what, what bar were you in? Uh, it was the... Um, Wakefield Inn? Any chance? Something, uh, it was the Black Goat, whatever oh, okay. that is in French. I, right, I'm right. embarrassed to say I don't No, I have probably have friends who live, I have friends who live in Wakefield, so I know exactly where Gorgeous place. Yeah, it's time. very, very nice. Um, and Bob, what'd you do? On New Year's? Yeah. Uh, I was over at Friends. Oh, Gord, Gord Mood, who you happen to know. Yes, yeah. Gordon Carroll's place, mm -hmm. and they had a number of people over, and we... Just sat around and chatted and socialized for the whole evening. Mm. Got home at four in the morning. Well, careful. We're using that word social now. Socialized. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we capitalized. Yeah, there you okay. go. We capitalized go. on the opportunity right. to socialize. Yeah. Okay. I want to... Uh, ask both of you and folks as you know on this program sometimes uh, bob and jeff do find themselves taking diametrically opposed uh, positions on issues and that's fun when that happens at other times i j when it's perhaps not an issue that calls for that i always value their opinions and their thoughts on something and i do have an issue i want to ask them about today you're certainly welcome to join us at any time during the discussion 643-1290 or star-1290 which is the free cantel number guys i want to ask you about this this robert chalk who's the young fellow who when he was a teenager he and I think his, uh, I was going to say his, his next door neighbor, oh, they killed his next door neighbor. He and a friend beat the next door neighbor who I, was in his 80s, beat him to death with um, a chair, uh, oh, I forget, four or five different things anyway. Like they bashed the daylights out of this poor man and killed him. At the time, Chalk was uh, quoted as saying that uh, when he was asked why they did it, he said, ah, we didn't have anything else to do. Uh, in the uh, original trial of he and, and his friend, they were trialed as ad tried as adults, uh, they were found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life, whatever life is these days, 25, I guess. Uh, it was appealed. The case was appealed. Uh, their lawyer had sought to prove that they were insane at the time and was unable to do so in the first case. Uh, before the appellate court, um, is that the right terminology? Mm -hmm. Before the, the appellate court, they argued again that they were insane, and somewhere tied, and I'm not sure exactly how this works, whether it was entirely about this case or whether there was another ruling, but anyway, the Supreme Court came to the conclusion that uh, if it could be shown or could be proved that you were unaware that what you did was morally wrong, you might have been aware that it was criminally wrong, you might understand that, which is why they were convicted the first time, because it, the case was made to the court that they weren't crazy. They knew what they were doing was against the law. But later, they, and they brought in psychiatrists and all these sort of people, and this, there's a thing called folie à deux, which is some kind of a, a, a psychosis of two people coming together at the wrong place at the wrong time. They both go nuts and commit some horrible crime that they wouldn't normally have done, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, they were exonerated. At least he was exonerated. Chalk was exonerated on the basis that he was insane at the time. Uh, four months later, the uh, the professional said he's, in, no, he's no longer insane, and they let him go. And he got a, a, a total discharge in 1996, which is four or five years after the crime. On New Year's Day, he uh, apparently killed two more people. Now, I made the point yesterday that he has been charged with that, and we all understand that charged is not guilty. 
but uh, we also understand in this case that apparently he's cooperating with the police and so on, and there, there, there seems to be little doubt that he did, in fact, commit this crime. Uh, so let's operate from the point of view that he did. Here's a guy now that uh, when he got the, the, the discharge, the, uh, his absolute discharge, the psychiatrist said he's, at, he's better, there's no problem here, um, he's a happy camper, he'll be a productive member of society, and out the door he goes. We find out afterwards that the, the, the uh, uh, review board that does this is not charged with determining whether he might be a danger to society in the future. They are charged only to determine whether he's a danger to society at this moment. And if the answer to that is no, then off he goes. And that's exactly what happened. Jeff, I'll start with you because you are a lawyer. Uh, it was suggested yesterday in the program from some people that a crime as heinous as the original one, where these two boys just smashed this man to death and showed very little remorse afterwards, that if there's ever a situation where we might want to look at, at long-term protective custody, dangerous offender custody, and so on, that this might be the, exactly the kind of textbook case where it should have happened. And had it happened, these two people that were killed on New Year's would not have died. How do you feel about that? How, well, well, from your perspective, when you've got a, I think he was 16 then, a 16-year-old who commits a horrible crime like this, and I think some people would say through almost a loophole, I'm not going to say a loophole, but almost a loophole in the law, he gets off because they convince the Supreme Court, yes, he was insane for as long as it took him to do this crime, but then he wasn't insane afterwards, so four months later, he's, he's out in the street again. Well, I guess uh, it sounds like it is a loophole to me in the sense that uh, a couple of things. One is that uh, I'm not a criminal lawyer, so I'm not current on this stuff, but when I went to law school, the conventional wisdom was that uh, pleading insanity in Canada was not a shortcut to being released because if you pled insanity, you, you were basically um, held at the pleasure of Her Majesty forever, basically, mm -hmm. and that that was sort of what happened. You'd go off to Penetanguishene, and there you would languish, or, or to St. Thomas, psych, um, whether the medium security facility for the criminally insane, uh, and you would just stay there. So uh, as a criminal lawyer, it was a defense that you very rarely would look to using, um, particularly when there was no death penalty anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, there didn't seem to be much advantage to pleading insanity, uh, and, I, and I hadn't heard of a case where somebody could get out so quickly. Like That, to me, is, is sort of the exception, uh, exceptional aspect to it. Uh, on the question of... Um, of how that can happen, I can sort of see it in the sense that when you're trying to assess insanity, you're trying to assess can the person uh, tell what they're doing from a moral standpoint uh, or, or from any, any sort of um, reasonable standpoint. If they genuinely can't, then that's what insanity is all about. That, that's, um, that's the basis of that defense. Uh, I remember years ago uh, that uh, when Helmuth Buxbaum was, uh, was convicted that uh, there was an appeal from it and uh, basically the, the, the basis of the appeal was that uh, he'd had, he'd have to have been crazy not to plead insanity, mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, yes, remember that. Yep. <laughs> it didn't work. But nice try. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so like in a case like this, it's obviously gone horribly wrong because uh, I can see where um, if he's convicted, then you can have a dangerous offender designation. He could stay in forever, and it would sound like from what you've said, uh, a, a crime that's that violent, unless there's some kind of bizarre twist to it that I'm not aware of, uh, is the kind of one where you're right. You would want to designate a person. On the other hand, what's supposed to 
happen in the system is that uh, if they're insane, they are kept secure forever. Um, and it seems to me that if there was a weak link here, it was with that decision to release him. Uh, I just can't imagine anybody making a decision that quickly. It's one thing if you've been in there for 10 years and they've had all kinds of time to assess you and, uh, you know, uh, who knows, you know, there's been some kind of a sea change. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe in a case like that, you can say, well, you know, it was a, a moment of passion, blah, 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 whatever. Um, you'd have some more confidence at least, not that I know anything about psychiatry, but some more confidence, I presume, in this saying he's not going to be a risk. But I would have thought that they would err strongly on the side of saying if there's the slightest chance of a problem here, we're not going to release this guy. That's what I hope as a citizen they're doing. But again, as I say, the what we learned from the case or what I learned from investigating was that their man, that is not their mandate. Their mandate is not is there the slightest, slightest risk that he might hurt somebody an hour from now, tomorrow, next Wednesday, is he okay right now? And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but at this point right now, is he okay? Is he a danger to anybody as he sits in the chair in front of the committee and psychiatrists say, oh, he's a pretty good guy and, uh, you know, he's okay, he's okay, he's okay. Well, I guess you're okay, goodbye. And what happens tomorrow is not their concern. Yeah, I don't understand that. That makes no sense to me at all. And again, that uh, from everything I've ever heard, the whole focus in, in those kinds of issues is that, we, you know, you'd like to try and work on trying rehabilitating the person and so on, but the overwhelming focus is the safety of the community, as you would ex- sensibly expect. You've got somebody who, who's identified as somebody who could go do a bad thing. You want to be bending over backwards to make sure that that's the last thing that could possibly happen. And if you can do some rehabilitation, they're great, but that's secondary. I, I would certainly agree that the whole thing should be the protection of the community and the fact that you can even have such a thing as an insanity plea means that the, the system's not based on that. It's mm-hmm. based on some other premise. Uh, I mean, I used to always hear this term, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity. I always used to think it should be guilty by reason of insanity. Mm-hmm. That's why you did it. And that's why you mm-hmm. did it. Yeah. And that yeah. a person of that situation is, is far more dangerous to society than, than a premeditative type of murder or mm-hmm. a person who, who you can't count on their passions. They have a passionate moment. I could easily argue that every single you know murder was, was a moment of insanity. Mm-hmm. And who, who could argue against that, really? I mean, when we all think about it, nobody would do it in a rational state of mind. Yeah. But that's the very issue that we have to protect people or society from is is people who tend to go into an irrational mode and you can't trust what they may do even to the point of violence of other people so so the whole insanity plea to me if you're going to be going for an insanity plea the sentence should be worse well, and it is an arbitrary distinction. Like, another thing about psychiatry is that it, uh, I, I think a psychiatrist would agree that uh, it's, it's an awful lot more like an art than a science in a lot of ways. Well, I, I read one time a fellow said that uh, psychiatry is art masquerading as science. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, even exactly. you, but even when you're talking about insanity, you're talking about a legal term. You're not even talking about a science or yeah. a medical term. Mm-hmm. And I've read a number of books on the subject that point out the legal definitions have nothing to do with what's going on in medical reality sometimes. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that that's that's my, why they might have said that Buxbaum was crazy not to go for an insanity plea because it's sitting there and the books are just waiting for him to mm-hmm. use it. You mm-hmm. know, that, it's got nothing to do with the state of mind. Well, let me ask both of you then about the idea of dangerous offenders and and incarceration without a specific end. I guess is it the uh, governor general's or lieutenant general's warrant that they commit you under something like that? Uh, yeah, lieutenant governor's warrant. I think it is. Yes. Anyway, it's uh, you're there at the pleasure of the queen, right. essentially, and you yep. stay there until she, through her representative, says it's it's time for you to go home. Is that a fair thing to do to individuals in our society? Well, I think it is. And, and the other thing about it, as I'm thinking about the insanity defense and where it, where it arose from, I, I 
think that it probably arose from the days when there was capital punishment and you could see the idea that if you've got somebody who clearly has no mental capacity who does something that you know physically they did it but mentally they're just not there somebody with for instance a very low IQ mm -hmm. uh, who does something uh, the question is should they be killed for doing something does have the same moral quality as somebody who who is of normal intelligence who sets out to go and kill somebody and I could sort of see where this could get going saying well it seems sort of unfair in a way like we'll keep him locked up keep him safe from or keep us safe from him mm -hmm. but to, to kill him as having done something morally wrong seems extreme uh, and, and most of these concepts seem to arise from hard cases where there's a particularly compelling case where it seems particularly outrageous to uh, to treat him the same as uh, and I'm sure it was a him by the way but <laughs> treat him the same as uh, as uh, you would somebody who was a premeditated murderer the idea though of keeping people locked up at the pleasure of uh, of the queen on the basis of uh, medical advice well what else are you going to do yeah. I, you know, I, it, it brings to mind a, a fundamental question. Should should our punishments be based on a crime or on the offender? Like, does it matter what motivates the offender? This almost gets into the area of, like, hate laws, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, whether someone shoots you because they hate you or because they love you, do I really care whether how why that bullet's in my Still gut, you know? Yeah. Um, so why is not the justice system looking at the crime rather than the offender. I realize you have to look at the offender to some extent, certainly in the, in the sentencing part. And, uh, but, but again, I, I think it's more, we have to think of more of what the crime is and, and point out and send a message that what you're being punished for is your actions, not who you are. Mm -hmm. But I would argue the opposite, that uh, criminal law is there to deter people from doing things on purpose. And, and one thing that's always troubled me, for instance, is... Well, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that support my point, that we want well, more punishment based on the actual crime? We might, we might be uh, speaking a little bit differently, but where I've been concerned is where people do something that causes terrible results, but they didn't mean to do it. Um, like criminal criminal negligence causing death is, a, is an offense that's troubled me because we have the whole civil justice system there to compensate people uh, you're, if you hinder them, but, it, but you didn't mean to do it, like a car accident and you, uh, you mm -hmm. wipe out a family, but, you'd, but it was just an inadvertence, you know, you weren't drunk or anything else, you just drove through a, a red that, light. That's an entirely different act. But yeah. that, it's also a crime. <laughs> and and uh, to me, that's inconsistent with the purpose of, uh, of uh, the criminal law, which again is to deter people from doing things on purpose. Let's go to the phones now. 643-1290 is our telephone number, star 1290 if you're a Cantel customer. And we have Sue with us. Hi, Sue. Hi. Hi. Um, I don't know if you can hear me good, but yep. um, just listening to your discussion, the lieutenant governor's warrant has been replaced recently under the criminal code. Yeah. And there is supposed to be, but they haven't decided definitive sentences. Mm -hmm. um, the loophole, though, that we continue to experience, and people of St. Thomas know this well, is that the people that used to be held under the lieutenant governor's warrants, because they were found not guilty, when they're released into the community, and often they're sent to Fanshawe College or for upgrading or whatever, right. the local police aren't notified. Yeah. Um, and we had that infamous case in St. Thomas where the man was rearrested and sent back to Penetang, mm -hmm. and the city police had no idea that they had three dangerous offenders living in the same apartment building. Yeah, which poses a real problem for them and for the community as well. Well, yeah, because the people were told that Saint, you know, it's a medium security thing, and that the people are under close supervision. Now, do you like the Bob made the suggestion that perhaps the uh, perhaps the uh, the result should be or the verdict should be guilty by reason of insanity rather than not guilty by reason of insanity? Yes, because once it becomes guilty, then the police and everybody have access, or the people that should have access to those records. Yeah, good point. Are Thank notified. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye, bye. But that raises another problem, though, doesn't it, Jeffrey? That that. By, and I, I'm certainly no lawyer, but 
my understanding is that that by definition if you are insane you are incapable of of uh, forming the intent to commit the crime you are incapable of entirely apprehending the, the significance of the crime ergo you cannot be and I'm talking under the law you can't be guilty of it because you were not able to to do these things that, that you have to have done before you can be guilty of something. Is that why the verdict is not guilty by reason of insanity? Well, yeah, and in fact, uh, you could argue at one level that they did intend to do what they did in the sense that they plunged the knife into the chest. They did do that. They, they, their you know, muscles set out to do it, and it happened. But the argument is that, that uh, for whatever reason, whether it's morally or rationally or whatever, they didn't appreciate the significance of that as being a wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the rationale, again, is that it wouldn't serve a deterrent effect because if you're insane, you're not going to be thinking about deterrence. You're not mm -hmm. thinking rationally. But is it so much deterrence? Or maybe as, as Sue suggests, that it might make... In her, as she said, the, the police are going to have access to more information about that individual because he's not not guilty he was guilty i don't see any reason uh, like we make our laws we make them whatever we want to be and uh, i don't see any reason why a law couldn't say if somebody who's who's uh, suffered from a mental illness of a particular kind that could potentially be a risk even though they've not been convicted of any crime i don't see why the police can't know about that uh, the police are entitled to know just about anything they want in our society anything any information they can get their hands on um the the, the, the next question is what do they do with it do they keep it confidential or do they broadcast it uh, there's certainly been controversy around that where where you have dangerous offenders being released into a community pedophiles and so on and and their names being published and uh, and where they live being published well we're going to hear more about that in this case too because who he killed this time at least allegedly killed were next door neighbors so what's going to happen i mean i'm sure somebody's going to raise that at some point had they known he had this kind of history would they have had whatever interaction they had with him would they have let him in the whatever happened we don't know but they were they were deprived obviously deprived of that information. Yeah, and that brings back a question then again of whose job it is to tell people and and what point you balance the right of an individual to privacy to the to, to the rights of the community to be safe. Um, we had that that Jane Doe case last year, for instance, in Toronto, where the police were were found civilly responsible for not mm -hmm. warning a woman that uh, she was a potential target of a of a of a rapist. Uh, and I could see that kind of thing ex expanding. Uh, there's no reason why it couldn't expand to the uh, the, the uh, mental health um, uh, administration, if you like. I, I just don't see a distinction. I see a distinction between moral culpability, saying, okay, yeah, you know, you didn't know what you were doing. We're, you know, we're not going to hold you morally responsible in that sense. We have this other stream, though, because you're not going to walk out of here. We, we like a safe how, society. How, how can you treat someone different who you're holding morally responsible or treat someone different who you're not holding morally responsible but still have to protect society from? Both both things amount to me to being in jail, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. So the issue of the moral issue as far as in intent and all that is irrelevant if the person is dangerous to society. Well, in the past it was a capital punishment issue. The, the, the oh, yes. Until, uh, what, 1960 or whatever, uh, you would be uh, uh, hanged, I guess, if you were found to be morally culpable, whereas you'd go to Panatanguishine if you, if you weren't. Um, but as far as the way we respond to it, I, I, I've, as much as I, I have these civil, civil libertarian uh, roots, I never understand why there should be any debate about uh, any issue that could affect public safety. Um, that when it comes to balancing the uh, privacy rights of somebody who's, who's done something bad versus protecting society at large, little kids and so on, to me it's a no-brainer. Okay, we have to pause for a moment. We'll come back and rack our brains on this one. Stay with us left, right, and center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer.
Bob Schwimmer and Bob Metz with me on our regular Wednesday feature, Left, Right, and Center, where we take a look at uh, issues of the day sometimes. Sometimes not issues, just uh, things that concern us and try to get some different viewpoints on it or share our thoughts and perhaps uh, provoke your thought processes as well. If you'd like to join us, 643-1290 or star 1290 on the Cantel. I, I want to uh, ask you both about this question, too, and I know none of us are, quote, qualified to determine this. But when we see cases where the, quote, qualified people let this guy out and he murders two more people, you start wondering who's qualified to do anything. When we talk about insanity, if you were to ask an average individual, how would you tell someone was insane? My guess is that the average person would probably make reference to them having done something that was absolutely crazy, that you just, you would not do that. Uh, I don't know what, you know, jumping off the Empire State or whatever. Um, but in a legal sense, the, 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 as Bob pointed out, the definition is not necessarily the same as it might be in the, uh, in the psychiatric world and so on. And I remember uh, uh, talking to a psychiatrist a friend of mine one time, and he said, you know, push comes to shove, most people at varying points in their lives, not necessarily violent episodes, most people could probably qualify as being crazy at some point in their lives. That we, most of us, have some you know, some aberration or some point where we do things that other people would judge us to be crazy. And I said to him, well, you know, I, something like, well, does, are we all insane? Are we all nuts? Is the world crazy? He said, no, no, that's not what I mean. What I'm trying to say is that when you start trying to define what insanity is and you, you, you move back from the patently obvious examples, you know, the guy that killed his wife and ate her in Toronto there. I mean, that's, where do you go but insane with that? But other things where, you know, somebody in a supposedly in a moment of, of rage or a moment of lost their control or whatever, like this chalk and his friend when they beat this old man to death, uh, which was not spur of the moment. It took some time beating him, apparently. Um, you look at that and say, well, how do we know? How do we judge insanity? What is insane behavior? Is it insane or is it just the wrong thing to do? Is it just simply criminal and they should be treated as criminals? Never mind crazy. That's actually a good question because I was also wondering in the back of my mind in our previous discussion whether someone could be insane and not be a criminal. Like, are there insane people running around who we never would think about locking up? Oh, absolutely. There's and, all kinds of them. And Without question. And so obviously insanity by itself is not a reason to lock somebody up. But I think insanity, when I think of it, generally means a certain degree of irrationality that becomes either self-destructive or destructive to others. But then, you know, you could easily argue, and I've heard it said, you know, you're crazy if you smoke. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, but is a person crazy if they smoke? Not really. They're just taking a risk. You're crazy if you get behind the seat of a, or, you know, in a fast car without your seatbelt, or, mm -hmm. you, you, or you do something risky, because some people would judge that risk so high that it would amount to craziness if they got involved with it, even yeah. though maybe the other person can handle it much better. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where I think the consequences are, are what we tend to focus on, and in a way that's misleading because it's a, it's a function of sort of being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong attitude sometimes, and uh, you could do something that is not that crazy, but a little bit crazy, but has horrific consequences, in which case you're considered to, buy, to be, you know, uh, off the wall. Uh, whereas on the other hand, as you say, if people are walking around who may have far more bizarre thoughts, but don't act on them for whatever reason, or uh, aren't in a circumstance where it happens to have some bad consequence, uh, we don't think about that so much. Uh, and, and to say, to go back to this, this, this uh, analogy for a second, um, I was thinking about the uh, family that were wiped out from Amherstburg, was it, uh, down in Detroit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. recently, and uh, by a driver who plowed into the back of the car. Now, I can't remember if alcohol was involved or yeah, not. I believe it was. But uh, 
it seemed that that was a classic case where people were so focused on the horrific result that uh, another drunk driver who was, was stopped by the police and charged with drunk driving wouldn't have nearly the same kind of opprobrium. Um, now, in a sense, I guess, with drunkenness, you can argue, you know, you, you get drunk, you take your chances, whatever, whatever result happens, mm -hmm. it's your responsibility. But... Um, to me, that person is not as bad as, uh, as uh, Paul Bernardo, who kills two people in cold blood. They're just not the same. There's, there's something less about that, uh, and yet... I, I agree with you. You brought that point up earlier. You were, you were wondering, you know, should it be a crime? You know, cr things, certain criminal neg negligent type of things. And, you know, th I think that might distinguish guilt from responsibility. I think you could say maybe somebody's not guilty in every single case, and, and if that means you know intention mm -hmm. but in every single case you're responsible sure, even, even exactly. if you aren't guilty you're mm -hmm. still responsible you've got to make good and you've got to make good and that's what i think the proper function of the law but, should be but what and I, I think too often we jump jump to the crime bandwagon mm -hmm. everything's a crime you know even things that aren't intentional I, I don't even think a lot of things that are intentional should be considered quote a crime as much as make sure there's well, and, kind of victim yeah, and bearing in mind that we change crimes all the time. What's criminal one day is not criminal the next day. What wasn't criminal is criminal the next day. We decide collectively what should be criminal. And in some respects, we have to step back every so often and say, well, why should this particular thing be criminal? What is it we're trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve deterrence? Well, we Are haven't we changed our minds on, on murder yet, though. Murder has <laughs> been pretty consistent since all of, all of recorded history that I know of. Yeah, yeah but, but our reaction, our our. our, our our feelings about murder have certainly changed over the years. Today in Canada, uh, people regularly murder under other individuals and are out of jail in three, four, five years. It happens all the time. I'll give you an example in my sphere where uh, until a couple of years ago it was legal for, um, for a man and woman to live together uh, and have the mom receive uh, family benefits. And then the law changed one day and said, you can't do that anymore, and it suddenly it was criminal. What was not criminal one day was the next day. Mm -hmm. uh, and no, it was criminal the first time, too, except it was legal. Well, but, <laughs> well, the same with child pornography. It was not many years ago when it was legal to possess. You couldn't make it, you couldn't distribute it, but it was legal to possess child pornography in this country. And it was, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, not that long ago, when they brought in the, uh, the amendments to the criminal code and made it a criminal offense. So there was something that one day, if you were so disposed and you had a collection of this stuff, one day you're a perfectly upstanding citizen, next day you're a criminal. So you're, well, yeah, think of well, how we a lot do. of gun owners feel today. Well, it's very similar. Yeah, well, yeah very and, similar. And uh, say, I, I think, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you say about this, Bob, but I think that the state should generally be trying not to intervene in people's lives unless there's a darn good reason for it, and that although everybody well, may what be... what constitutes the darn good reason? Well, that's like, what I'm going to ask you about, because uh, I would say that we are responsible for what we do, and there's a civil uh, justice system for that, to say that if you you infringe on someone else's uh, what a proper whatever uh, that system kicks in but as far as where it should be as far as when it should be called a crime we go beyond saying you're responsible to you're actually a criminal when when should that occur and when should it not well I think you're basically committing a crime every time you do violate someone else's individual rights um, if you steal their property you're, you're, you're committing a crime if you injure them shoot them basically crimes tend to be more life and property issues as far as I can see and that that, that includes a lot of other sub issues you know even uh, you know you might be thinking more subtle issues like contracts for example somebody breaks a contract is that a crime no not really it's uh, but there's legal recourse because of the existence of the contract should there be a moral quality to it like it should parallel a uh, judeo-christian morality system well, the ten commandments crimes i think that's inherent in the nature of what a crime is when you violate another individual's rights you are being immoral. 
That goes hand in hand. That's what individual rights are. Individual rights are a moral code to the, to begin with, and it's a moral code that says your rights begin where the other guy's nose begins, or end where the other guy's nose begins. That kind of a premise, and that's you need a code like that in order to survive amongst a collective. Otherwise, people would be all fighting over the same things. You need property rights. You need ways of defining where one person's rights end and the other person's right begins. So, so do we need more criminal laws or less criminal laws, or do we have about the right number? Do you think? Quantity-wise, oh, we, we have so many laws that aren't really criminal laws. They're, they're what I would call laws that are statist, that just control people's choices and behavior and often fall into the category of uh, victimless crime-type laws or uh, um, just arbitrary laws that restrict certain economic activities that, that really shouldn't be illegal in the first place. Let me ask you about, uh, and, and Jeff mentioned this earlier, uh, a situation that is very contentious in our society. Um, if if I were to um, uh, pick up a knife and go out on the street here, and I wouldn't do it today, but somebody was walking down the street and I stabbed them. And maybe somebody I knew, maybe it was somebody I didn't know, but I'm not really crazy. I just got angry and I'm going to kill somebody. I stabbed that individual with a knife. Scenario number two. Uh, I sit in my office in the afternoon and I drink a 26 or a rye. I get in my car and I pull out onto Wellington Street here and run over that same individual and kill the individual that way. In our society, it is highly likely that I will be much more severely punished for having knifed the person than for having run them down with my automobile. The result is exactly the same. They're dead. The, uh, the preamble is exactly the same. I undertook actions that were dangerous to this individual and ultimately killed this individual. And yet society, for some reason, now it is changing slowly, but for some reason, and, and I'm sh I don't have the stats in front of me, but judging by the number of stories that we talk about on the show and the papers over the, over the years, I would, I would tend to say that the, the drunk driving killer, the vehicular homicide guy, is going to get off lighter than the guy who took the knife and stabbed somebody you know when, when when we're talking about a situation where we're not really compensating the victim there's no answer to that question but in both of those scenarios I would say they were equally responsible not equally guilty but equally responsible well, I would ask you why are they not and, equally guilty well because of the nature of, of the crime as you described it, it's the same it's like, it's like the insanity plea like when you're really drunk out of your mind you, you could basically say you're insane and that was the premise I think that our courts operated on for a long time mm -hmm. Because if you drink enough, um, you're not capable of making, quote, moral judgments uh -huh. or even rational judgments uh -huh. or even sometimes physical judgments. Uh -huh. uh, now, the courts have distinguished between recklessness versus intentional behavior. They may say that if you get drunk, you're being reckless. And, and in some cases, they may say that's just as bad. But how do they know that I didn't get drunk and drive down the street and think, I'm going to kill that son of a gun and run him down? I wasn't just drunk and not paying attention. They have no way of knowing that. The result, this is what troubles me, again, the result is still exactly the same. Both of those people are dead. Therefore, the responsibility is the same. Um, but why isn't the guilt the same? You suggested that well, the, the again, guilt Well, again, I, I, I'm, I'm arguing that guilt as such, if we're, if we're comparing a person guilty versus a person who's insane, is irrelevant. It's, in, like, it's the same like the hate, hate law crimes, you know, it's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's the nature of the crime and the person should be held responsible. I mean, we can talk about putting people in jail. The jail aspect to me is a function of protecting society. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, a guy who gets drunk once and maybe does some property damage or injures someone or maybe even kills someone but never does it again is a, is a different kind of a situation, you know? Uh, but if there's a repeat there, a second repeat shouldn't even be tolerated because mm -hmm. then you've got a real problem. Mm -hmm. um, a guy that just goes out and wantonly kills and shoots people or whatever is a totally different issue. Um, you know, he doesn't even need a drug or any outside influence to get him into that state well, of mind. It's funny in the sense that, as I'm thinking about this, I, I believe, and I could be totally wrong, but I believe that I've heard that the the uh, argument that something is a crime of passion is actually a mitigating factor. That if you uh, if you mm -hmm. come home, you find your wife in bed, and you shoot shoot the guy in the moment, heat of the moment, that that actually will be considered to be less serious than if you set out to stalk the guy and, and do him in or whatever. Um, and, and maybe it's well, you know that why that is. That's because most people picture themselves in that situation and go, yeah, right on. You know, I'd do the same thing. You know, now, is so that they true tolerate drunkenness as well, do you think? That, uh, I think there's well, a lot of sympathy there, yes. Yeah. And, and a lot of sympathy for, unfortunately, the perpetrator and not nearly as much for the victim. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the focus of the justice system should be is on the victim. And putting people in jail isn't, isn't helping victims a heck of a lot. Well, certainly this whole issue of drunken driving and how we treat it has a lot to do with there but for the grace of God in the minds of many people. Yeah. And, and I read a very uh, uh, well-reasoned argument some years ago about that that suggested that one of the reasons we were so lenient was not necessarily that society felt that way, but the members of the legal system felt that way, that these tended to be... Uh, upper middle class white males, many of whom enjoy a sarsaparilla from time to time, and that uh, that 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 idea that geez, you know, that could be me. I don't want to see that guy going away for the rest of his life because what if it had been me? I'm not a bad guy, you know. If I'd had a few drinks and driven and got caught or run somebody down, it'd be a terrible shame. But I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to. I didn't want to hurt anybody. So how can I? How can I blame him when I couldn't blame myself? But it's definitely changing now, and I think it's because yeah. the, a wider, wider group of society is speaking up and saying, well, you're we don't hearing care more from that. the victims. That's a big, well, that's part big, of it too. Big issue. Although, you know, I would argue, and maybe I'm, let me try this one on you for a moment, that in some respects, victims of uh, drunk driving are treated far more uh, seriously and with a lot more um, beneficial result in society than uh, victims of murder in the sense that we require everybody who drives to have car insurance and victims of uh, drunk driving uh... you know will we'll access all kinds of money as far as uh, damages and so on they're treated uh... far more generously than disabled people for instance who yeah, have to buy an eight hundred dollars a month yeah uh, that's one of the paradoxes i always found when i was doing personal injury law was that they have this theory of perfect compensation and that is that if you're hit by a drunk driver you should be as perfectly as possible made whole and that's how you get into these multi-million dollar judgments whereas if you're knifed to death chances are there's no insurance for that we don't require people to carry uh, mandatory insurance for uh, for uh, personal liability that is if you go out and injure somebody or kill them um, chances are uh, you're not going to get any money for that but if you get hit by a drunk driver you could get millions of dollars and and that's not just by accident our society requires that okay, I'm, uh, gonna, I'm gonna put both of you on the spot with a question I asked a caller yesterday uh, she had phoned in, and we were talking in a roundabout way about vigilantism. And she said that in some situations, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but some situations you could understand that, where, where the law just was not going to mete out justice, what was obviously justice, and someone had escaped, and so on and so on. And she referred to a case where the, the, the family of the victim went and beat the guy up, the perpetrator, because they he got out and got off or something anyway. And uh, we talked a little bit about vigilantism and whether it is ever justified the idea that uh, uh, if, uh, if, the, if the law does not provide for justice, if it does not allow the community to uh, justice to be not only be done but be seen to be done, uh, 
If the law then, by implication, holds us in contempt because it does not grant us or it does not listen to our concerns, then in turn we will hold the law in contempt to a certain extent. The specific example was um, a little girl comes home, and I don't want to make this worse than it needs, but a little girl comes home, has been molested uh, fairly seriously. Comes in, daddy says, what's wrong? Crying, blah, blah, blah. It was the man down the street in the yellow house, and he did such and such and so and so. Terrible, terrible thing. We can all sympathize with the father. I think we can sympathize, sympathize with the father's rage in that situation. Dad grabs a baseball bat, goes down the street, bangs on the door of the yellow house. Guy comes to the door. Dad beats him senseless with the baseball bat. Um, the case goes to court. Maybe he kills him. Case goes to court. Certainly, we, he's not going to walk, but you said earlier, Jeff, about crime. one of you said something about crimes of passion and so on. He would be, I'm sure, get a sympathetic hearing from any, juror, from any jury, uh, perhaps even from the judge, and he, he would probably get some time, but it's not likely he'd get life in prison in that situation. I asked her, okay, let's suppose say exactly the same situation. Um, and we've already agreed that he would probably be cut some slack because of the emotion, etc., etc. Exactly the same situation. He goes down the street with a baseball bat, bangs on the door. Guy answers the door. He beats him senseless and kills him. It was the wrong guy. Right house. There's another guy in there who did it. Wrong guy. Does that change, or should that change, our attitude towards the crime? He was, he was moved by the same instincts... Well, I, I saw I saw both your examples as exactly the same thing. We should be treating them both the same. Mm -hmm. he, he has to go to trial and go go to court and be charged with murder in this but, case. But I, I think the reality is, I would submit to you, the reality in this country is the the first guy, the guy who killed who killed the right guy, is entirely likely to get a much less severe sentence than the guy who killed the wrong guy. But they both did exactly the same thing for exactly the same reason. Well, and again, that comes back to me to uh, this question of how the victim figures into the thing. <clears throat> and right now, um, you know, I gather that uh, the the victim doesn't really figure in except in sentencing. They can deliver a, a victim mm -hmm. impact statement. But uh, I see it as a pretty different scenario, and, and it's perhaps an argument for not uh, being a vigilante. Well, certainly it is, and <laughs> it's a very good argument to not do that. But if you're going to have any respect at all for the victim, for the innocent victim, you've got to hammer the guy much harder. And uh, perhaps it gets into this recklessness again, where if you do something that has a potentially bad outcome, and it does indeed have the really bad outcome, well, you took your chance. But, how can, but how can we say that if, if and again in our hypothetical, the guy did exactly the same thing for exactly the same reasons. The only difference was he killed the wrong guy. No, you're right. It's, it's uh, paradoxical, but uh, you can't deny the, uh, the victim, uh, for starters. <clears throat> and it does come back to this question of what do you do with the outcome? How much does the outcome figure into something? Um, for instance, somebody goes to try and stab somebody, but they miss. You know, their intention is exactly the same. Their aim is bad. But, uh, so, mm -hmm. so as a result, there's no charge or a minimal charge, whereas if they happen to be aiming a little bit better, then it's a big serious charge. Well, there's, a, there's a, uh, an issue raised one time. Maybe it was even here on the program at one point where somebody raised the question that, that uh, should there even be such a charge as attempted murder? The fact that you missed, should that have any bearing on the case at all? You, you pointed the gun, you pulled the trigger, you intended to kill him, you missed him, or you wounded him, so you're charged with attempted murder. You put it between his eyes, you kill him, you're charged with murder. Well, you did exactly you, the same thing. Then you can cross the next line and say, well, can you put someone in jail for thinking about committing a murder? He hasn't done it yet, he hasn't attempted it yet, but he wrote, it, wrote his plans down on a piece of paper mm -hmm. or something like this. Well, in fact, if he talks to another person about it, he can for conspiracy yeah, he, he to can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So uh, maybe that's part of the answer. But to, to, to answer the justice inherent in the different sentences that, that that same individual you just mentioned would get in the two circumstances, I don't think there's an answer to that other than uh, an emotional one. I don't think you're going to get a, a rational answer because mm -hmm. the courts aren't totally motivated by the strict law and rationality. Well, particularly that, juries. That's why we have yeah, juries. Or juries. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I think that's why you're going to see the, the differences. And I don't know that that's a good or a bad thing. I think it's bad in some cases and good in others. And often that's, that's an emotional evaluation because you can't just put a, a, an arbitrary single price on everybody's life and on everybody's interests and on everybody. It, life's not like that and justice isn't perfect. But there is an ideal we can shoot towards, but we'll never reach it. But we know that it's in that direction and not in the other direction, mm -hmm. where you want to get too many laws and start treating people who aren't criminals as criminals in the hopes of protecting society from future crimes. It doesn't mm -hmm. work that well, way. Well, that's it. There's always going to be something unsatisfying about it. Neither you have sort of a broad discretion where, where bad things happen, and you say, oh, we've got to tighten up and have mandatory minimum sentences and stuff. Then you do that, and somehow a case comes along where that's not appropriate, uh, arguably Latimer or something, potentially. Uh, one thing about justice is that it's unsatisfying. We're going to pause for just a moment. When we come back, we're going to follow up uh, one of the threads that uh, still lays on the desk here about vigilantism. Stay with us. Like both my guests, I'm sure, and like I hope most of you, I'm a big believer in the rule of law, that uh, it is what in many cases defines our society and certainly protects all of us from something, not from everything, it's not perfect, but uh, the idea that the law is kind of above us all and, and uh, that everyone must be subject to it. Uh, I'm going to pose a quick question to both my guests. We're almost out of time, and I suspect we may come back to this on, a, on another program. We talked a little bit of, earlier about vigilantism, or vigilanteism, I'm not sure which is correct, um, where you take the law into your own hands. And uh, if you are a, an absolute believer in the rule of law, you simply don't do that. Even when the law is wrong, even when justice fails you, it's still part of the system, it's still part of the code, and so we respect it, and we, we go, you know, we're not happy, but we go away. Um, situations where people are released, and they, they do happen from time to time, where there's no question of their guilt. In some cases, they may even have admitted the guilt, evidentiary reasons, uh, some kind of uh, fumble during due process and so on, and they walk. Is there ever a justification, Jeff, in a situation like that? And let's come back to our little girl who's uh, perhaps, uh, let's say she was killed by this individual. He was apprehended. One thing led to another. Some, uh, some mistakes were made and so on and so on. He eventually walks. There's no question in the public's mind that he did it. There's no question in the Crown's mind that he did it. There's no question in the, in the father of this little girl that he did it. Uh, and in fact, maybe he even admits it because there literally have been cases like that uh, in the States. I'm not sure about Canada, but certainly in the States. The father goes and gets the gun and shoots the guy. Now, obviously, he's committed a very serious crime. He has taken the law into his own hands. On the other hand, who did he kill? He killed the fellow that molested and killed his little girl. It's extra legal. It's vigilantism. Is there any justification at all for that? Uh, I would say no, although I understand it. But I think that the more... Uh, the, the better way to go for us as a civilization is the O.J. Simpson route, and that is that you sue him, you get a judgment for a, a, a lot of money, and then you hound him and harass him for the rest of his days. Now, I guess they haven't, haven't been that successful yet in that, and that he seems to be out and walking around, but I would try and make sure that he's ruined and destroyed in every legal way possible. Huh? That phrase, take the law into your own hands, is almost self-defeating in a way because you'd almost think you'd want people to take the, the law into their own hands if it's the law it's the law mm -hmm. it's legal like in the example you gave earlier with the two scenarios i would have said 
the proper way to take the law into your own hands is to make a citizen's arrest mm -hmm. and then subject a person to the justice system. And, and to use a term like extra-legal, I think you're, you're really, it's a euphemism for illegal. Mm -hmm. um, you're either working with the law or not. And I think, I think there should be more sort of citizen authority to make arrests in certain extreme cases. But you wouldn't want to see people starting to go and making arrests and, well, and this taking the law in their own hands on... on well, in meeting you know, social issues. Well, is, yeah. is, is this one of the areas, though, where we do have some built-in flexibility in the system? Is this one of the areas where juries do become valuable? Because I don't think anybody would want to say that, that, that what that father did in our hypothetical case, that that was acceptable. I don't think anybody would say that. Understandable, yes, but not acceptable. Is this a situation where the juries come to the fore because they can weigh all the circumstances and they might indeed determine, yes, he killed this guy, yes, he murdered him, but there were extenuating circumstances and we're gonna, that's going to factor into how we find for this? Is that part of the value of the jury system? Yeah, it is, and that's, what just, that's why we don't have machines, uh, computers running the justice system, because if we wanted to, we could just have computers and say, well, just feed in the facts and they'll spit out what's going to happen. And there is something um, that, that lawyers believe in that's magical about juries and the idea of putting 12 regular people together that somehow, even though they don't know anything about the law, even though they're you know, maybe not, not too great at sitting there listening to a long trial, somehow the right thing will come out at the end. And it's not necessarily the thing that we had thought beforehand when we framed our laws was the right thing. But I think that juries are, you know, they're, they're, they're the thing that sort of keep uh, the system in touch with society, which is just absolutely critical. And it serves that purpose, but it's a it's a purpose that you can't articulate with lo logic. You can't say, well, you know, we have to factor in a little bit of humanity or whatever. It's just a, like a sponge that sort of keeps it all together and holds it together. Well, there there is a logic to it. I mean, no two people are alike, even if they do commit this quote same crime. I think the structure of law should provide a certain minimum and maximum for a certain crime. I I think that that they should be certain punishments too. There shouldn't be punishments that that can be maneuvered out of later once mm -hmm. they're, you know, given, unless there's extenuating circumstances or new facts to enter into a case. But um, you have to start with, with a rigid law and then apply the measure of discretion you have with what the law provides for you. And you're going to have problems on both ends of the scale. You're going to find laws that are unjust, and you're going to find juries that are a little unjust, and judges that, that are unjust. You know, I hear a lot of cases of judges not even ru ruling that much toward the law, but towards a sense of sympathy or, or, or you know, anything like that. So there's a lot of factors in the whole court system that can all, you know, come out of the wash with a result we might not like or like. It, it works both ways. One thing about the criminal justice system, as somebody who's had some exposure to it, is that I think you really want to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> On either end, it's a scary yeah. place. Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer, my guests, uh, well, my, not my guests, my friends and co-hosts on this edition of Left, Right, and Center. We would like to mention to you as well that, and I don't think we've said this for a while, if there are issues out there that you'd like to hear discussed on Left, Right, and Center, um, please feel free to let us know. You can email us or fax us or call us, do any of those things you like, on or off the air. Uh, and let us know, because we'll be happy to take a look at them. All three of us enjoy discussing uh, a wide variety of issues, uh, as I said earlier, sometimes from different viewpoints and sometimes simply just to discuss them and uh, try to open up some new lines of thought perhaps for you as well. So if there's an issue out there or something crosses your table and, and you think it, uh, it would be interesting to hear what, what uh, my friends have to say about it, don't ever hesitate to let us know, because we're always pleased to hear from you.